cool. So anyway, Mark 11 is where we're going to be this morning. If you want to turn there, Mark chapter 11. Uh, and I'm going to tell you this morning about a, a, a brief conflict that Tristy and I had this week. And it, it happened on Tuesday evening, and it, it was very brief. And uh, I'm going to tell the story because uh, everything about this story um, makes my wife look good, and it's all my fault. Everything about it, right? Um, and uh, even last night, I thought, well, maybe I should tell her I'm going to talk about this and ask permission. And I said, well, I'm not even asking her permission, but I'm just going to tell the story. And I told her, and I knew in the back of my mind, I thought, she won't even remember that this happened. Because right, that's just kind of how she's going. She won't even remember this happened. I started telling the story. Go, she's like, I don't remember. What are you talking about? Well, here's how it went. Right, I, it was Tuesday night. I worked out right before I came home. Um, and uh, I was really you know, tired and real hungry because I just worked out. I got to the house. And she made a really nice meal for me. Right, so I sat down immediately. And food is in front of me. And it was a really, really, really nice meal. And I ate all of it. I mean, like literally, I ate everything that she had cooked for the family I ate because I was really hungry. And when I finished that, I was still hungry. And so I went to the fridge to look for some leftovers that she had made uh, previously. And they were gone. And I was angry. <laughs> you know, because I was still hungry. And you know, how, uh, like, and I wanted those leftovers. They were on my mind. And, I, and I, I don't even remember how, but I somehow kind of expressed my anger, my frustration over that. And, uh, you know, and, and, and put that on her. And then immediately, as, you know, this tiny conflict started, it, it quickly dissolved because I, I remembered and I realized I really appreciate the fact that my wife cleans out the fridge, which she does. Like she, this is what, I mean, she just, she goes through and she cleans things up. She's a, she puts things in order for, for our uh, entire married life. Like if I'm, if I'm making a peanut butter sandwich and jelly sandwich and I don't quite finish, if I step away, the peanut butter, jelly, and bread will all be gone. I mean, I'm not kidding, like literally. So even this week I was making a cup of coffee. I put the creamer out uh, on the counter and I didn't quite finish. I stepped away and the creamer was gone. My cup was gone. Everything was gone, right? That's just, she just cleans. And I tell our kids all the time, if you leave it in the common area, it will be gone. It will disappear and it's your fault. Right? So I'll go, oh, mom, where'd you put it? Where'd you put it? You should have put it. Somewhere, right? So this is what she does. She cleans house. She puts things in order. And as I was reading our, our passage this week, I thought, you know, that's kind of like our lives. Our, our lives get cluttered and out of order. And it may be uh, our schedule, our time, or it may be uh, our r- relational world or our emotional world. Things get cluttered. And we just need to stop and put things in order again. So the next few weeks, we are going to be looking at the last week of the life of Jesus, right? Leading up to uh, Good Friday and resurrection on Easter, we're going to look at this last week and these last few events. And and I I thought to myself, what what would I do if I just had one week left? What would you do if you knew you just have one week left? You'd focus on the things that are most important to you, right? You would put your house in order. So... What Jesus does is he spends a lot of time with his disciples. He gets their hearts and their minds prepared for his departure. They don't really receive everything, but he's, he's putting things in order. Uh, but the first thing he does on this week right before he's about to depart is literally cleans house. Right? Jesus literally cleans house. So I want to look at this story of the cleansing of the temple, Mark chapter 11. And let's read together. Uh, let's begin actually in verse 7. Mark chapter 11, verse 7. They brought the colt to Jesus, and they put their coats on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their coats in the road, and others spread leafy branches, which they had cut from the fields. Those who went in front and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus entered Jerusalem, and then he came into the temple, and after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve, since it was already late. On the next day, when they had left Bethany, he became hungry. Seeing at a distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to it to see if perhaps he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. So he said to the fig tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. Then they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple, and he began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple, and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And he began to teach and to say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it into a robber's den. The chief priests and the scribes heard this, and they began seeking how they could destroy him, for they were afraid of him, for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they would go out of the city. So what makes this story so unusual is that it's so rare for Jesus to become angry. Right? Jesus doesn't get really, really angry a lot in the gospel records. And I think, I think this is the only occasion where he gets seriously rowdy. Right? I think it's the only occasion where he leans in and he gets physically aggressive. I mean, he didn't, he didn't even get angry at the Romans or at Pilate or at Herod. He didn't throw out his, his rage at those who were torturing him or uh, th- those who, who were mocking him when, when he was on the cross. There was no rage for them. Instead, there was just gentleness and kindness. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. But here you see Jesus absolutely enraged. And we have to ask ourselves, why? Why on this occasion was Jesus so very angry. So I want to set the scene for us. Uh, we are entering into this final week before Jesus' life. And remember, there were, there were three cycles of festivals in the Jewish calendar for which the Jews were required to go back to Jerusalem and worship and make sacrifices. This is one of the three. It's, it's leading up to the Passover season, the Passover cycle. And during this season, literally uh, thousands of Jews, tens of thousands of Jews would descend upon Jerusalem to uh, make their sacrifices, to bring a Passover lamb. They probably would have other sacrifices uh, that they needed to make, such as uh, dedicating uh, a child, right, or sin offerings or guilt offerings or thanksgiving offerings. And so typically what would happen is uh, they would not carry all of their animals for sacrifice. Right? They would sell property, bring cash, bring coin, and then they would exchange it and purchase their animals there in Jerusalem. So it's a very common practice for, for hundreds of years for them to buy the animals in Jerusalem. They also had to pay a temple tax, and that had to be paid in uh, the local currency, which was a Tyrian coin. And so bankers or money changers would change their coins for them, and they were allowed to charge a certain level of interest because coins held value based upon their actual size, how much metal was in them. And as they wore down, they were, would lose a little bit of value. So it was really common. And normally what had happened really for hundreds of years is that the, the sellers of animals, the markets, and the money changers all set up shop on the Mount of Olives, right? So if I can orient you here, the Mount of Olives is down here on the lower right. Uh, this is where the Garden of Gethsemane was. Really, it's like a ridge. They're not really a mountain. It's, it's more like a ridge. And then there's a small valley, the, the uh, Kidron Valley in between, and people would buy their animals, and they would exchange their money there on the Mount of Olives. They would go through the Kidron Valley and up and make their sacrifices. However, in 30 AD, Caiaphas moved the markets 
from the Mount of Olives into the temple itself. And it was apparently a pretty controversial move because you can, you can still read about the rabbis' arguments and debates about moving the marketplace in there. And so what happened uh, was, was, you know, wasn't accepted by everybody. We don't know exactly why Caiaphas did it. I'm going to offer a conjecture here shortly. But um, Jesus uh, saw all this, and we have to uh, see if we can figure out why did this make him so angry? What set him off? In this moment, what set him off was this. The worship of the people was being inhibited. Right? God was not able to receive the glory he deserved because the space for worship was no longer consecrated. It wasn't set apart. Now it was being taken up by commerce. And Jesus' single greatest passion was that his father would be glorified. Right? His single greatest passion was that his father would be honored and worshipped, that his father would be given all that was due to his name. And now they are not making room, literally, physically, for worship. Instead, there's, there's chaos, there's noise, there's smell. It's, it's, it's just, uh, it's, I mean, imagine, I mean, imagine if you came in this morning and on the stage there are animals, Right? Bleeding and you know they're just smelly and they're making a mess right and they're they're moving around and there's just this chaotic you know and then they kind of move in amongst you whatever I mean just imagine try, imagine trying to worship in that setting of noise and chaos and clutter in the space of worship they're not making room for worship so remember when Jesus was asked um, about how how to how to pray and he said well I'm going to give you a prayer and how did he start. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. What does it mean to hallow? It's, it means set it apart. Right? Regard it as different, other. Literally, the word is holy. It's unique. That is, make, make sure that, that the name of the Father, that is, his characteristics, his attribute, his honor, his glory, his works, all that he has done, make sure that it is weighty among the people that you interact with, right? Make it weighty in your personal life. Make it weighty in your heart. Make it weighty in your home. If there's one priority, Jesus says, it's that the Father receive what the Father deserves. Let his name be honored and glorified. Make room in your life for worship. And so Jesus is enraged because they're not making room. They're taking up the room for worship and they're turning it into a place for commerce, right? It has just become simply a market. And Jesus is willing to do Anything required to remove the barriers for worship. This account is actually recorded in all four Gospels. Uh, it actually shows up at the beginning of the Gospel of John. I, I think it's the same account. Uh, John is less concerned with chronology. He's teaching theology. But listen to uh, John's description in chapter 2, verse 15. It says, And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers, and he overturned their tables. Now, uh, a couple of simple observations. I don't know if you caught it when we read through the Mark's version, but remember that you have the triumphal entry, and then he sees the fig tree, curses the fig tree, and then he gets out off of uh, and walks into Jerusalem, right? Because he was coming from Bethany, right? It's just a short walk. Actually, he would go through the Mount of Olives, through the valley, up into the temple. So he walks into the temple. He looks around. He sees everything that's going out on around him, and then he he, he catalogs that, and then he goes back to Bethany and he spends the night. And then he comes back the next day, 
and he begins to make a whip. Right? You just walk in and pick up a whip off the table. Uh, he probably went around and he collected some, some leather cords. And, you know, uh, I don't know how long it takes to make a whip, but Jesus probably sat down on some of the steps and he just started braiding a whip, right? He's just braiding a whip. And, and I can just imagine his disciples are watching him and they're like, what are you doing, Jesus? And he goes, you'll see. <laughs> I mean, he's probably a faster whip braider than I am, right? Because he's a carpenter. He knows what he's doing with his hands. But he's, he, he knew what he was doing. This is not, right, this is not an uncontrolled fit of rage. He saw everything that was going on the day before. And he goes, okay, okay. Walks back into the temple. Starts making his whip. Finishes making his whip. Walks over to the money changers, those with animals. And he goes, whoops. An animal starts scattering and he turns tables and it's, he's just, it's going crazy, right? Coins are scattering everywhere. Animals are running everywhere, right? This is not, uh, this is not a, oh my gosh, I'm all of a sudden out of control. This is calculated because Jesus has been fuming because his father's not receiving what his father deserves. And so he flips the tables. And I just imagine, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know this for sure, but I just imagine that um, some of his disciples were a little bit embarrassed, right? You know, I just know, I know when, when Tristy and I were out in public and we start to get a little loud or whatever, our kids are like, come on. <laughs> I just imagine, you know, the disciples are like, whoa, Jesus, relax, chill. It's not that big a deal. But is, the, is the reaction appropriate to the circumstances? Well, I read a story this week. Uh, this uh, happened just in January. In January uh, 2019, there's a family in Georgia. They came home from vacation, and they went to unlock their door, and their key didn't work in the door. They just couldn't figure it out, right? So they're trying the lock, and trying the lock. It doesn't work. They go around the backside. They try the lock. It doesn't work. Can't figure out why they can't get into their own home. So they call the locksmith. He begins working on the door, and then he hears something inside. So he called the police, and the police came, and there was a guy who gotten into their house, and he wasn't going to leave. They ended up, they had to call a SWAT team, right, to get the guy removed from the house. And so the family finally got back into their house, and what they found is he'd taken all the pictures off the walls, he'd eaten all of their food, and he even left them a note. He said, thanks for for, uh, letting me stay here. This is my house now. Literally, he said that, right? They were pretty frustrated. I mean, you know, appropriate response to call in SWAT? Yeah, because it was their house. It was not his house. But he changed everything he'd taken over. He'd slept in their bed. He'd eaten their food. He'd taken down their photos, put up his own photos. I mean, it's absolutely insane, right? Because it wasn't his house. It was their house. And the appropriate response was to get him out of their house. Listen to Mark chapter 11, verse 17. Jesus began to teach them, and he said... Is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it into a robber's den. You've taken my space that is for my worship for all peoples, and you've turned it into something for which it was never designed. I want you to mark your place here in the book of Mark, chapter 11. Turn back to the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah is about in the middle of your Bible. It's one of the big prophets called a major prophet. Uh, We don't have lots of quiet times in Jeremiah because he's called a weeping prophet. He's just depressing to read, right? But uh, he says some pretty important stuff. Jeremiah chapter 7, and I want to read to you uh, beginning in verse 1. And I'm reading this because this is what Jesus quotes from. At least part of the quote comes from Jeremiah 7. 
And I think he gives us some additional context. So says, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord, or the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house, and proclaim there this word, and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah, who enter by these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words, saying, This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly practice justice between a man and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the alien, the orphan, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, nor walk after other gods to your own ruin, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. Behold, you are trusting in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, and commit adultery, and swear falsely, and offer sacrifices to Baal, and walk after other gods that you have not known? And then come and stand before me in this house, house, which is called by my name, and say, We're delivered, that you may do all of these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? Behold, I, even I, have seen it. So, What's happening here is that the people are walking into the temple and they're going, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. This is just a magic place, right? As long as we've set foot in the temple of the Lord, all is good. It doesn't matter how we live. It doesn't matter the condition of our hearts. All that matters is that we go through the motions and we showed up for the feast or festival and we walked into the temple itself. In other words, it is pure and unadulterated hypocritical worship, right? It is completely hypocritical. Because their behavior and the attitudes of their heart is just absolutely atrocious. But they think somehow just by setting foot in the temple of the Lord that they've given God what he deserves and they've pleased him. When Jesus gets mad, right? This is the only time that Jesus gets truly physical and he pulls out the whip and does all that. But Jesus does get mad on other occasions, doesn't he? You remember why? It's, it's all, almost always the same. It's in the face of hypocritical worship, particularly when the the spiritual leaders of the nation, whom he calls whitewashed tombs, right? That is, it's all cleaned up on the outside, and what's inside? Bones of the dead. And throughout all of the entire Bible, including what Jesus taught, we learn God doesn't care anything about going through the motions of worship. What he cares about is the heart. It says, sacrifices I have not desired. What I want is a broken and contrite spirit. What I I want is genuine transformation of your heart. I want you to give me all of your affection. So, remember the story. Jesus gets on the colt. He comes in. They declare him. People declare him as Messiah. And then he gets off of the colt. He's walking in. He's a little bit hungry. And he sees a fig tree. But it has no fruit. It's an illustration. It's a physical illustration. The fig tree represents not just the people of Israel, but specifically the spiritual leadership of Israel. And the problem is this. There are all kinds of green leaves, but there's no fruit. Again, it's like a whitewashed tomb. It looks good on the outside, but there's no reality on the inside. And as a result, God is not receiving what God deserves. Remember, we studied Malachi recently, and it was one of the same kind of issue And what Malachi said, or the Lord said through Malachi, is this, you're you're robbing from God, you're stealing from God, because what he deserves, right? Because he he does deserve it. 
He is uh, incomparable. We just sang about it. He is unique. There is none like him. He's creator of all things. He owns all things. That means we belong to him. And the only appropriate response is that we give him according to his worth. That is, we worship him. But our lives become cluttered and chaotic, and, and room for giving God what he deserves gets pushed further and further and further and further and further out. Now, I know that uh, a lot of you don't, you don't want to uh, bother me and trouble me. right? Um, I can't tell you how many conversations that I have with members of our church, and it starts like this. They go, Brian, I know you're so busy, but... Right? I know you're so busy, but... And, you know, there's a part of me in my heart, I go, yeah, you know, I'm kind of busy. <laughs> Because if I weren't busy, then I wouldn't really be doing much, and no one would really need me. But if I'm busy, it seems like maybe people do need something from me. I'm actually doing something. I'm being productive as opposed to non-productive. So the busy actually brings validity to my life, right? And okay. And so, Brian, I know you're kind of busy. I go, well, thank you for that compliment, right? But then there's another part of me that says, wait a second, what kind of vibe am I constantly giving off? That I have no time for people, which is actually what I'm called to. You know, hmm. And it, it, it always causes me, I take a moment right then and I stop and I think, uh, why, am I, why am I busy? Because my schedule is full, but am I actually doing the right things? Right? Or am, am I just trying to do the things that I do and do them better and more efficiently? Or am I doing the right things? Have I really thought about what's best and highest and have I prioritized accordingly, or have I la- allowed my, my life and my schedule and my time to squeeze out the things that are most important, particularly to squeeze out room uh, for God? And I force myself to re-examine. And, you know, I, I, I think it's safe to say that uh, you and I all live in a culture right now that it's just an, it's an epidemic of busyness. It's just busy, crazy busy. I looked at an article uh, uh, recently it was from Johns Hopkins Health Review. And the title of the article was uh, The Cult of Busyness. And it was titled Cult of Busyness because in our culture, we worship busyness. Right? We worship busyness. And so the first line went like this. So there's a global epidemic of overscheduling, and it's ruining our health. And I would argue it is also ruining our spiritual lives. It's ruining our spiritual lives. Eugene Peterson uh, wrote a little book. It's called The Contemplative Pastor. And uh, even if you're not a pastor, I would really encourage you to read this book. I read it about once a year. Uh, it's, it's a great reset, clean the house kind of book for me. And one of his observations is this. If you are, if you are constantly frantic and you're busy, 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 uh, paradoxically, you're also probably lazy. Hey, track with me here. You're lazy because you haven't had the discipline to say no to things that are less of less value, and yes to other things. And you're often just letting other people fill in all the gaps in your schedule. And so you're busy, 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 and one of the reasons is because you're actually lazy and you don't have the discipline or the courage to say no, yes. Right? And I, I need to read that book, and I need to read it at least once a year because it gives me that opportunity to stop and uh, hit worship, and remind myself, church, if our greatest calling, if Jesus said his greatest priority was that his father be worshipped, and that our greatest calling is to worship, to make room for God, then we're going to have to be intentional about it. Because we live in a culture that's going to crowd out our schedule and, and applaud us for being busy. 
So um, when I first started kind of walking with the Lord, somebody told me about a quiet time. It's not a phrase in the Bible, but I like the idea. Um, Jesus modeled it. Right? He would frequently, we're told, pull, pull aside. He would pull out of the chaotic schedule and just listen to the Father. He would just be alone with the Father. Do you think that Jesus was busy? As I read the Gospels, I never see Jesus frantic. But he did have a pretty big job, right? I mean, you don't redeem all of humanity from the dead of their sin. Right? And get it done in three years. I mean, there was a bit of pressure on Jesus, but he's not, uh, not constantly scrambling. Instead, he's making room. Right? He's making room for what's most important. Uh, I went to a, a Stephen Covey seminar years back, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I, I really like that book still. Uh, you know, it's, it's a generation past, but it's still, it's a good book to read. But I went to one of his seminars. He wasn't teaching it. Uh, another guy was teaching it, and he gave an illustration. Maybe you've seen it before. Uh, he's, he's got a, 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 the speaker had a jar out there, and it had um, it had rocks and it had pebbles and it had sand and it had water. And the question is this, said, can all of this fit in the jar? And the answer is yes, but only if you put them in in the right order. Right? If you put the big rocks in first, then the pebbles shake them down and then the sand and shake it down and then the water, it all fits in. If you get it out of order, it doesn't fit. The big rocks have to go in first. But if you put sand or water or pebbles in first, you're only going to get a couple of the big rocks in. You've got to put the big rocks in first. Now, this has nothing to do with the message. I just think it's funny. The guy who was teaching the seminar showed up late. <laughs> it's like, hmm, I guess we were not one of your big rocks, right? Something's out of whack here, just, right? But if you put those big rocks in first, the other things have an opportunity to fill in around. It's not that they're unimportant, but they're not as important. And if you don't make room, it just won't happen. So college students, uh, I, I, love, I love still sitting down and meeting with college students. I love your stage in life. Um, but I will tell you, I hear over and over and over again from college students, I'm so busy. And I'm so busy. And, and I don't doubt you are probably busier than uh, you've ever been before. You probably are. You've got uh, full-time school. Many of you are working a job. You've got a boyfriend or a girlfriend. You've got three Bible studies that you're going to, right? Or three boyfriends in one Bible study. I don't know. But, but it's right. The schedule's packed anyway, right? But I'm going to tell you, you actually have more discretionary time now than you will ever have again for the rest of your life. You have so much control over your schedule that you will lose. So now is the moment to set the pattern in your life that you put the big rocks in the jar first. And the first one is worship. Be with Jesus. Listen to Jesus. Be quiet before Jesus. Young professionals, your world is uh, probably now even busier than it was when you were undergrads because more people own your time. Right? You have less discretionary time. But we can't say, we love God, but we have no time for God. Because we put time toward that which we love. Right? I remember when I first uh, met Tristy, I was very busy. I really had no time. And somehow, magically, time appeared to spend time and, and it was kind of an ever-expanding amount of time. It was really miraculous. It was a miraculous thing. It was remarkable. Because my affections had turned, and I wanted to be with her. My families who have young children, uh, you just get a pass. No, I'm, actually, you don't. You don't get a pass either. You do not get a pass. You've got to get creative. 
You've got to get creative. creative. Husbands in particular, I would say, make sacrifices to make room for your wife to not have somebody pulling constantly. You, you have to get creative. And it may be time alone with the Lord and somebody is sitting on your lap and they're noisy, noisy, and then they fall asleep. Or, you know, it, it just it can happen. And it may be shorter periods of time, or it may be time stolen early, or time stolen late, or it may be time uh, as you're in the car, but, but you, can, you can, you can squeeze out the time. But if you're going from event to event to event to event to event, you have to remember this. Because you're a creature made in the image of God, you get to make choices. Real choices with real power. It's part of being in the image of God. You, you make powerful choices. And I know, we all want our kids to be able to go to Texas A&M. It's the greatest university on the planet. We all want our kids to go there. And we want our kids to play professional soccer and volleyball because there's so much money in professional soccer and volleyball, right? We want all these things for our kids. But the most important thing that we do for our kids is to model our priorities. And that requires difficult and often countercultural choices for us to clean house and put the Lord first. So what frustrated Jesus was, first and foremost, this. There was no room for worship. So his great passion, make room for worship. John 2.17 says, his disciples remember that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Passion for your house, for this place that you've set aside for yourself to be worshipped, it will consume me. Second, make room for others. If Jesus' great passion, first and foremost, was that his father be worshipped, his father get what his father deserved, it was that all people would have the opportunity to give his father what he deserved. That all people would have opportunity. That all people would have an opening or a way would be made for them. Look again in Mark You've marked your place there. Mark chapter 11 again and verse 17. He began to teach them and he said, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a robber's den. Uh, this is a combination of a quote from two places. So the first is that Jeremiah 7 that we looked at earlier and then Isaiah chapter 56. My house will be called a house of prayer uh, for, for all of the nations. And so, uh, let me show you this, this map one more time. The, the markets were moved from the, the Mount of Olives, and they were moved into the Temple Mount area, specifically into the court of the Gentiles. And so it was the Gentiles, specifically, who were getting squeezed out. And we don't know, we don't know how much of this area was, was reserved uh, for the Gentiles. It was a significant portion of this area. And the whole Temple Mount is actually the equivalent of 27 football fields, right? So there's lots of property there. And there's lots of room on the Mount of Olives. But what they've done is they've moved the marketplace into the very court of the Gentiles, which is the only place that Gentiles could go to worship. And so what the gospel does, right? Jesus will pay any price, even to the point of giving his own life so that his father be worshipped and so that all people have access to his father what Jesus did was he broke down all barriers to worship. The Gentiles could go into this court, but that's as close as they could get. And there was literally a stone wall that warned them, if you try to get any closer, you will die. And then Jewish women could get a little bit closer to the Holy of Holies, to the presence of God. And then Jewish men could get a little bit closer than that. And then the priests and the Levites could go and they could get a little bit closer and offer their their sacrifices on behalf of the people. 
And then behind the veil, into the very Holy of, Holy of Holies, one priest, high priest, one time per year, for just a short period of time, he got to go into the very presence of the Lord. And according to tradition, they would tie a rope around his ankle, and he had bells on his robe. Just in case he died in the presence of the Lord, they could drag him out so that no one would have to go in there on fear of death. Why? Because we're sinful people and God is absolutely holy and we're carrying our sin into his presence. And so the temple was designed to draw people to the Lord, but it was also a visual illustration. You can only get so close. And if you get too close to the very holiness of God, it will destroy you because of the debt of your sin. I want you to turn with me to Mark chapter 15 and verse 37. Mark 15, verse 37. It says, Jesus uttered a loud cry and he breathed his last. And upon breathing his last, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Wow, I wonder what the priest did with that. Stitch it up quick, man. The veil of the temple, which represented the life of the Messiah, was torn in two. So the barrier between sinful people and a holy God was removed. Why? Because all of that debt of sin was transferred to Jesus. And he bore the penalty, which was death, so that people can come into the presence of the Lord now and not die because they carry the righteousness of Christ and not their own debt. Our debt and consequence of death, as death is transferred to the Son of God, who took it upon himself. And it was such a heavy weight that it tore him apart. And he did all of that so that men and women from every tribe and tongue and people and nation could have equal access to the Father. Right? That is the gospel message. Hebrews chapter 10, it says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, right? the high priest once a year, would take blood, not his own, and he would put it on to the, the, the altar. Right? He put it onto the Ark of the Covenant. But he had to go back year after year. Why? Because the blood became old, and it dried up, and it flaked off. And so he would cover it over again. And it was an illustration. It was a covering, literally an atonement, but not a removal. It covered over the debt, but it didn't remove the debt. And so it had to be offered over and over and over again, the author of Hebrews tells us. But instead, Jesus comes in with better sacrifice, that is, his own blood, which is always fresh. It's always living. It's always capable of continuously removing any possible debt of sin. He brings in his own blood. And he, he spreads it over the mercy seat. And now when God looks down upon us in our sin, he sees not our sin, but he sees the blood of Christ. And so the way is open. That's what the gospel did. It broke down the barrier between God and men. And as as a result, it also broke down the barriers between us. Ephesians chapter 2 reads, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Remember, there was literally a wall, right? Literally a wall. You can see a cornerstone of that today with the inscription, Gentiles cannot come near. Paul says, you know what? That's all been knocked down. The veil of the temple has been torn. And now in Christ, there's neither slave nor free, Jew nor Gentile, male nor female. We all come come on exactly equal grounds, and that is the blood of Jesus Christ. Isn't that a beautiful thing? And so the picture of of God's people in the future in Revelation is men and women 
Old and young, from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, worshiping together, united together. Why? Because our barrier between us and God has been removed by the death and resurrection of Jesus, but our barrier between one another has been removed by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And so the church can be this model of a new community where all people can come together equally. It also removes the barriers between us in terms of social status which was a huge issue in that day and is a huge issue today. I don't know if you noticed, but in the three uh, synoptic accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the, the animal that's mentioned is the dove. Right? The money changers were in there, and they were, they were selling dove. Dove uh, were the, the sacrifice of the poor. And if you can't afford these other sacrifices, then you can just buy a dove. And so, I, you know, we don't know specifically why did the priests allow commerce to come in, but I think it's a pretty easy... Uh, Assertion to say it was money. Right? They, they allowed the money changers and the, the sellers of animals to come into the very temple courtyards so that they could take a cut. They could make, t- make money off it. And who was harmed the most? Those who had the least. So if you go back and you read that Jeremiah passage again, uh, Jeremiah chapter 7, because the people's worship has become hypocritical, it's not really from their heart. Their attitude toward God is not right, and well, then their attitude toward the people around them is not right. And they take advantage of the people around them, they abuse the people around them, rather than caring for one another, which is just a natural consequence, right? If our theology is really good, then our relationships with others will be good, and specifically those who are more needy around us. God, God cares for all people, right? But especially in his heart, there is a concern for those that society does not take care of. The widow, the orphan, the poor... In fact, what do you see in Jesus' life? Well, you see him, he touches the lepers, right? The people who are untouchable, that no one will touch. He physically, whenever Jesus healed a leper, he didn't just say, be healed. Touched them. Their uncleanness could not make him unclean. So he touches the lepers. Uh, He has meals with uh, the traitor IRS agents, the tax collectors. He shares a meal with them. He walks through Samaria and he interacts with Samaritans, even a Samaritan woman who's had five husbands. He sits and asks her for water, just the two of them. He lets prostitutes touch him. He cares for those who are outcasts. He cares for those who are vulnerable. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a beautiful thing that nothing else can do. It brings people together because we're united in Christ. I, do, th- I think, do think it's a tragedy that um, poverty and racism have become taken over. It's just the domain of the political realm, because really it should be the domain of the church. It should be the domain of the church. If, if in any place there is hope for healing among people, it is in the body of Christ, because we can look around the room at absolutely every single person sitting here, and we can say, in the image of God. Right? Nothing is more important about you than you're in the image of God. You look different. You, you, you speak differently. There's something different about you. But what's most important is what's the same, and it's the image of God. The image of God. And so the gospel does what nothing else can do. It removes that barrier between us and God. It removes the barrier between us. So let me give you a couple thoughts on how we, we might uh, apply this. A couple ideas. First is this. Are you making room for others to worship? 
Is there, is there something in your life that creates a barrier? Is it an attitude? Is it a behavior that create, makes it hard? People look at you, they don't say, wow, Christ is really beautiful. But no, there's some other drum that you're beating so hard, some attitude or some words, something you speak that, that is making a barrier. It's making it hard for people. Or are you, in fact, uh, pursuing, chasing, looking for, especially people who are different from you, so that they can be drawn to the Father? Church, we are so richly blessed, we do not have the right to be passive. We are so incredibly rich and blessed, we do not have the right to be passive. It is time, church, to get over our fears and go and bless the people around us with the good that we do, but also get to the words. Speak the words of the gospel. Get to the truth of the gospel. It's the message they have to hear. Are we making room or are we putting up barriers? Second, are you making room in your own life for worship? Um, It it may be like you know, with the, the, the priesthood, there were just... There were sin issues. There's greed that was crowding out their love for God and then crowding out other people's opportunity for worship. Or maybe it's just accidental. And you look at your life and go, I'm so busy, I'm so busy, I'm so busy. And it's just been accidental. All of a sudden, you've got the, you know, this accumulation and you need to open up that fridge and start tossing stuff out. And go back and evaluate your life and put the big rocks in first. Because then all of life can become ordered around it and you will be healthy and whole. It's the best thing for you and it is what God deserves. So as we close, I want you to take a few moments and just ask the Lord to search and examine your own heart. Is there something that you need to do to remove a barrier for others? Or is there some reordering in your own life that puts God first? Let's just take a few moments quietly before the Lord, and then we'll close. Father, I pray that we would be courageous people, that we would be willing to let you turn over the tables in our lives, that we would see the things that have have, uh, begun to, to clutter our thoughts and our affections and practically speaking our, our time, and we would allow you to do a reordering that would bring us just so much more freedom and joy. Father, I pray that we would not be resistant to the work of your Son in our lives. Instead, we would welcome that. And I pray, Father, especially that um, you do just a genuinely supernatural work uh, in this church. Make us winsome for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Give us opportunity to speak of him. Give us opportunity to uh, do good and love our neighbors as we would want to be loved. And I pray that during this next year you would draw more and more and more people who don't know your son, Jesus, and they'd be drawn into worship uh, through him and through our, uh, through our faithfulness to put our lives in order. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Uh, have a great week putting things in order. We'll see you next week.